Uh, it's just wonderful. And I'm sorry that a lot of you are suffering with winter. It just, it's, it's February 20th, 2021, and the reports are just horrible. Uh, we're going to be about 80 degrees today, high 70s, low 80s here in Arizona. So my heart definitely goes out to you guys. I hope that the ice and the snow and all the horrible things that are happening, especially in Texas, will pass very, very quickly with no residual death. Um, we are in step nine. When we get started on today, we're going to be starting on page 82. But before we get there, let's kind of review what we've been doing. And we have been talking about step nine. Step nine is one of the steps where, uh, not one of, step nine is a step where we need a sponsor. We, we do not want to just go out there and blast out these uh, amends. And sometimes in our zeal, we can create more harm than we actually you know, created in the first place. So remember that this is a step where you must have an informed, unaffected sponsor. You need, I need guidance, excuse me, in this area. I need guidance in all areas, but especially here. And a lot of times people too, what I see is they're on step one, they have about 15 minutes of abstinence and right away they wanna go make some amends to people. Don't do that. Cross each bridge as you get to it as instructed in the big book. And when we talk about step nine, we are talking about restitution. We're talking about amends. Restitution is more Oxford group language and amends is really AA language. Bill Wilson started to pull away from the Oxford group in late 1937, and the Akron group started pulling out in 1939. Clarence Snyder started a group in Cleveland of AA in 1939, which accelerated greatly Dr. Bob's uh, uh, approval of pulling out of, from the Oxford group movement. Bill was very sure that he wanted to pull out in New York because he could sense that A, they were putting some pressure on him to go get people from um, Wall Street instead of the drunks. And Bill kept insisting, no, my calling is to sober up drunks. And they kept saying, no, 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 you're not being of maximum service. Go get us some guys from Wall Street. Well, what was the difference? The guys from Wall Street, they had money. The drunks had no money. And that's what the Oxford group really wanted was for them to get um, uh, some guys with, with some money. So anyway, we're looking at step nine and in step nine, we're making direct amends to such people that we've harmed, except when to do so would injure them or others. And this is another reason that we need guidance because in our fear, in our jealousy, in our tempestuous resentments toward people, in our human feelings, our fear, as I mentioned, we will convince ourselves that paying this money back that we've taken from this person or a store or institution or group will harm my family. Well, you were smart enough to steal it. You'll be smart enough to pay it back. And as I said, the last time we met, I paid money back to people that I owed and I never missed a mortgage payment. I never missed a car payment. I never missed anything. 
And the bottom line is still this, there is a God and he will provide. So I have to really lean on steps two and 10 as I go about my ninth step. We're going to see when we get to step 10 that we vigorously commence this way of living. Step 10, as we cleaned up the past, not after we cleaned up the past. So it's important for me to work 10 as I'm working nine, because otherwise the fear, the shame, the guilt, the resentment, the remorse will drive me right back into the food. And that's what I really want to avoid. So I want to lean on steps two and 10, understanding that I have a higher power, understanding that it's very important for me to work step 10. Otherwise, this fear, these jealousies, these emotions will get the better of me. And instead of making the amends, I will make the run to the candy store, the donut shop, what have you. And then I told the story of Ernie Gehrig. Ernie Gehrig was a, a, a very early member of, of AA. Actually, he was in the Oxford, uh, the Akron groups before there was an AA. He was in the Akron groups when we were still part of the Oxford group movement. And he and his wife moved there from Michigan, from Ypsilanti, Michigan. And they ended up in Toledo, Ohio. And in Toledo, his wife found, about, uh, found out through the grapevine about a doctor in Akron that was sobering up drunks. So Ernie and his wife went to Akron in search of this doctor and they came upon Dr. Bob and the Oxford group movement. And Ernie was quite the playboy. Ernie had lots and lots of girlfriends when he was in Michigan and lots of girlfriends when he was in Toledo. And then when they got to Akron, he found girls there too. And his wife had had his, her fill of this. And she said, the heck with him, I'm going to go get myself a boyfriend. He's not the only one that can play this game. I can play this game too. So she goes out in Akron and she finds a man to pay some attention to her. And it was a Friday night and they were at the Oxford group movement meeting at T. Henry and Clarice Williams home in Akron. And the wives were in the kitchen and the men were in the living room. And she mentions to some of the other wives that she showed him and she's got herself a boyfriend. And the Oxford groupers, the, the women in the Oxford group movement, they convinced Mrs. Gehrig, young Mrs. Gehrig, uh, no relation to the baseball player that we're aware of, um, they convinced her that she needed to make a restitution to Ernie for doing what she did, that what she did was wrong and it must be confessed to and she must own up to it and she's got to go make some restitution. So the next day was Saturday and Dr. Bob and his wife, they were out grocery shopping. They took the car and they were grocery shopping. It was a Saturday afternoon around 3 p.m. and she and Ernie are sitting in the kitchen and she decides this is the time and she lays this on him. She says to him, I've got a boyfriend. I'm sick and tired of you running around on me. I want 
wants you to know what it's like. There's a man and he's paying attention to me. And Ernie doesn't react quite the way she thought he would. He reaches over. And if you've ever been in Dr. Bob's kitchen, it's quite a small room. Their home on Ardmore Street in Akron is quite modest. It's a quite modest home. It looks pretty stately from the outside if you've seen pictures of it. But as you go inside of it, and I hope that if it's God's will that most of you or all of you, not most, all of you will get a chance to see it because that's really where our story begins is in Akron on Ardmore Street, actually in the, in the Cyberling Gatehouse, which is about 15 minutes from that, from that home. But anyway, he grabs a knife and it's a good thing she was a fast runner. She was quick because he tried to stab her with this knife and he's chasing her around Dr. Bob's home. In comes Dr. Bob and Ann Smith, arms loaded with groceries. And Dr. Bob tries to get the knife away from Ernie and he is trying to stab Dr. Bob and he's trying to stab Ann Smith and he's trying to stab his own wife. And Dr. Bob finally wrestles the knife away from him. Thank God no one was hurt. Thank God no one was hurt. Um, and so Ernie was asked to leave. They, they said, you, you guys have got to go. You can't live here anymore. We can't live like this. So they had to leave and they went back and Ernie went into a mental health facility up in Michigan for what he had done. But the bottom line is Ernie Gehrig is the reason the historical stand, the historical line of demarcation where we added Made direct, made direct amends to such people that we've harmed, except when to do so would injure them or others. What should Mrs. Garrick have done rather than lay this on him when he didn't know? See, if he knew about it, that's one thing, then that's fine. But if he didn't know about it, telling him is just going to hurt him. What should she have done instead? Let's examine that for just a minute. What she should have done instead is she should have just stopped the affair. Stop and work either work things out with your husband or not work things out with your husband and get a divorce, but you don't run around on your husband in those situations at that time under those, situ under those conditions. She should have never laid that on him. So we have no right to cause further harm to another person. So we learn that historical lesson. And you know, you've heard me say this before. You've heard me say that every time we come into a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, we are walking in here on the shoulders of giants. And if you're new, you may get the impression that all the giants that we walk in here on had wonderful recovery. The guy behind me, the guy that's kind of keeping his eye on me, that's Bill Wilson. He's the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Dr. Bob was the other co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And these guys, once they started, they never drank again. But we get this impression when we're new that all of the people that made this what it is recovered. And that is simply not the case. You had Ernie Gehrig's and you had Ernie Galbraith and you have a lot of these guys, most of the guys uh, who wrote the stories in the first edition of the big book 
died drunk. Most of them died drunk. They went back into the liquor after a time. So some of them serve as cautionary tales and some of them serve as examples to follow. So it just depends on the character. It just depends on the situation. But Ernie, whose name most of you don't know, who's, who you may never have heard of before I told you this story, unless you've read Dr. Bob and the good old timers, most of you've never heard of him, but he is integral in our history because from this example, we they changed step nine from made direct amends to such people wherever possible to made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And then when the book was written in 37 and 38, published in 39, this episode was behind them and they had already learned what they needed to know from this example. Direct amends, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, wherever possible, except when to do so, would injure them or others. Let's go to page 82. We're going, to, we're going to continue now with step nine. Very important, if I can get my pen, okay. The alcoholic, I'm, at the, I'm toward the bottom of the page on 82. I keep waiting for the Greek translator. Last week, everything I said had to be translated and I keep thinking, uh-oh, I better stop. Well, now I've got to get back into my normal mode here. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others Hearts are broken, sweet relationships are dead, affections have been uprooted, selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? You know, you don't have to be an alcoholic to wreak havoc on the lives of other people. I wreaked havoc on my own life and I wreaked a lot of havoc on the lives of my mother and my father. My mother and my father were very, very concerned about my weight. They cried tears many times over the state of my physical body and what the doctors were telling them, even at a young age. I owed a lot of money. I brought shame to myself. When my mother died when I was 22, when my father died when I was 24, they both went to God rather convinced that I was not going to be capable of living a life in this world as an independent adult. And to a great degree, at least for the first few years after they died, they were 100% correct. I lived in filth. I lived in squalor. I brought shame upon my name. I caused a lot of problems for a lot of people, caused them problems with money, caused them problems with lying, caused them problems through my own self-pity, caused them problems because I couldn't do the things that they could do and they didn't want to exclude me, but they really had no choice. I couldn't go to the singles bars. I couldn't do the things that they could do physically. I was ruined by this disease. My life was in turmoil. And so what I have found is that through God's mercy, through God's grace, this program, the steps in it and the people that comprise it 
have restored me to where I have a life today. Yes, I still have to call in a professional cleaning crew every once in a while to clean my home because I'm not the cleanest guy in the world. I'm not the best housekeeper in the world. That is a certainty. And yes, I have to pay them instead of doing it myself or what have you. But I haven't written a bad check in many decades. I have an excellent credit rating. There were banks in Chicago that wouldn't have given me five singles for a five cash. I wrote checks on accounts that had been closed. I wrote checks on accounts that had no balance on them, what have you. It was just a freaking nightmare. And I was a drain. I was not a fountain at all. I was a drain. And I had to go back and I had to make amends for all of those things that I did. I took a lot of money. I had, you don't make amends to the IRS, obviously. You, you, you pay them out but I didn't pay taxes for a long time. And into my life came a man, his name was Sonny Goodman and Sonny was a lawyer. And what I came to understand is that not all lawyers can plead before the IRS. You have to have certain accounting credentials to plead before the IRS. And he, through the guy that I was working for at the time, came into my life and spent hundreds and hundreds of hours of his time, hundreds and hundreds of hours of his time, straightening out my situation with the Internal Revenue Service. I hadn't even filed taxes for many, many years. He went and he pleaded and he got it down to a settlement and I made my payments and I'm I'm even with the IRS, I have tremendous credit today. He never charged me one penny. God provided somebody in my life with the expertise and the willingness to help me because he knew that I needed help and he saw something in me. He's dead now, he's been dead for a long time. But I remember him fondly and I owe a great deal of gratitude. And God sent many people to my life to help me through these peaks and valleys. He sent people. When God couldn't come, he sent you. He sent the loving, wonderful people of Overeaters Anonymous. I remember distinctly, and this has nothing to do with the ninth step, but I feel compelled to talk about it. And if I'm if I'm out of line, please forgive me, but I feel I feel God asking me to tell you this. I remember when I first came in and I started losing some weight. And I remember in the 80s when I was over 700 pounds and I had had a life of people ridiculing me, people in public, children laughing at me, pointing at me, adults laughing at me, pointing at me, making me an object of ridicule, which is one of the reasons I so desperately wanted to die. One of the reasons that I so desperately didn't want to live in this world, because I really didn't want to be an object of ridicule. And I had to pretend that I didn't have feelings for girls. I had to pretend that I didn't have the dreams that other people dared to dream. I had to pretend that I wasn't competitive in life and saw myself losing at every game. I had to pretend that all these things didn't bother me. People would come up to me in restaurants and table for 
one is very lonely and they would take food off of my table and give it to the bus boy and say, he's morbidly obese. He doesn't need this food. And I had to go along with it. And I didn't even know these people from the front door. I had never met them before in my entire life. And that was something of a nightmare for me. But when I came into this program and I wasn't doing the wrong thing anymore, when I was doing the right thing and I lost, say, 200 pounds. Now, I'm going to say that again. I want that to sink in for just a minute. I lost 200 pounds in this program and I was still a 500 pound man. And I believe that if God was as merciful as he was purported to be, that the, the laughing and the pointing and the ridicule would stop. But I was still a 500 pound man and the ridiculing and the, the absolute abuse was still there. And when no one would show up to comfort me, the people of Overeaters Anonymous were there. They came into my life through the phone line. They came into my life through the meetings. We didn't have Zoom then. We didn't have anything like that then. There was no such thing as Zoom. There was no such thing as teleconferencing or anything like that. They were there and they stayed with me after the meetings were over and they were there with me before the meetings started. And I had people that abused me in OA, not just outside, in OA. I remember distinctly, I don't know why I'm talking about this, but so please forgive me because this doesn't really have anything to do with the ninth step. I just feel compelled to say it. So I'm going to say it. Maybe, maybe there's someone on the line that needs to hear it. I'm not sure. So forgive me if I'm out of line. I remember distinctly at Swedish Covenant Hospital on the Sunday morning meeting, we had a woman in the, in the meeting and she said, please don't sit next to me ever because I'm scared that if you have a heart attack, you're going to fall on me and break my leg. This was in OA. She asked me not to sit next to her because she was afraid that if I had a heart attack, I would fall on her and I would break her leg. Now, what does this have to do with amends? What it had to do with amends for me was I was angry. I was broken. I was upset at God and upset at myself and upset at the world. And I really did not, now I'll tie it together. I really didn't want to make these amends. I was saying to myself, F you world, you've abused me. You've made me an object of ridicule. You've given me no reason to believe in the best of humanity. Even though the best of loving humanity was staring me in the face at every juncture, during the meetings, during the conventions, at the retreats. The first five or six retreats I went to, I never paid a penny because I didn't have the money and the group would take up a collection and send me to the retreats. That's how I met Fred Schneider. Fred was the one who started the how program. If you ever want to know who started the how program, it was Fred Schneider. He was a school teacher in Brooklyn and he believed that OA people were not learning the program. And he, he did what teachers do. He developed a curriculum. And I, that's how I met Fred. And I knew Fred for years. He used to come through Chicago quite a bit. 
And I met Bill Bluestein. He was the guru on the West Coast. And you had Fred and you had Bill and you had all this other stuff. And I didn't want to go out and make these amends. I had been bucketed around. I had been hurt. Well, I have to put that aside. Now, let me bring this home because you're going to have to put aside the hurt that you have felt. You're going to have to put aside your fear, your anger at making these amends. And we're going to have to remember that the people that hurt us are also human beings. Remember always that they are people they're not bad people. They're just sick people. They're people. Resolve to be compassionate with the weak, the striving, helpful of the elderly, the unknowing. Be compassionate and loving for the wrong and, in, and have an awareness that in your life, you will be all of those things. So the people that hurt you, that you now have to go make amends to, they're just people. They're just like us. They're people. And we will be there for you. God will be there for you. The steps work. Here's your guarantee. It's on page 88 of the big book of AA. It's your warranty. It's your guarantee. It is your life guarantee. It says on page 88 of the big book, it works. It really does. Trust this process and you will never go wrong. Okay, let's continue. <sighs> Everything here is blooming. It's spring. And man, I must have I used half a box of Kleenex last night as I was sleeping. And I've probably used most of a box already this morning. I'm on the top of page 83. I hope that makes some sense. Sometimes I confuse myself with where I go with things. Okay. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring but the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. We are not here to criticize somebody else. We are not here to point out the shortcomings of another person. We are here to clean off our side of the street. And here's another bottom line, boys and girls. Here is another bottom line. Remember that we are gonna make amends and we are going to do the things that the big book tells us to do, not because these people deserve anything, but because we deserve to have the matter behind us. We deserve, we forgive, not because they deserve to be forgiven, but because we deserve not to be angry anymore. We make restitution, not because they deserve restitution in some cases, but because we deserve not to have to carry that dreck around with us anymore. And let me tell you, there are few feelings in this world that are as euphoric, that are as soul-filling, that are as wonderful 
as making these amends. It is a wonderful thing. I've often said this, if I had a pill here, I don't have any pills, but if I had a pill here, let's just say this piece of paper is a pill and I could give you this piece of paper and it would cure you of this, I would tear it up and throw it in the toilet because I wouldn't want to cheat you out of the journey. This is the most wonderful, the most, the most miracle laden, the most loving, the most growth giving journey that you will ever take. Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, the people that you're going to meet. There are 129 of you on the line, right? 128 of you on the line right now. Somebody just got off the phone. Okay. Uh, okay. Somebody just got off the Zoom, but that's okay. I don't take it too personally. What the hell? No, anyway, um, there are 128 of you right now. And you know, you never know when you guys are going to meet up, be it a convention, be it a retreat, whatever, but you don't know where God is going to take you. Hold God's hand. Let him guide you through this. Let him take you on this magical mystery tour, and you will be amazed at where you're going to end up. So we clean house. I'm at the top of 83. So we clean house with the family asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. What does that indicate when it says we, we um, ask each morning in meditation? We are already doing step 11 and 10 while we are doing nine. And that is a point of a lot of confusion for a lot of people. It references it right here that we are already doing step number 11. It also indicates, boys and girls, that this is a process. Many times amends, particularly to the people closest to us, it is a process rather than an event. Because what will happen if your life is anything like mine? Yes, I owe Joe money. I owe him X amount of dollars. I pay him X amount of dollars, whether it's in one hunk or it's in payments. And then we're even, we're square, we're done. We usually go our separate ways. Maybe we won't, maybe we will. But to the people closest to us, to the people closest to us, amends is usually going to be a process. And what that process will include, yes, is an apology. Yes, an admission, some contrition for what you have done. But things will become apparent as you move forward that you did or didn't do that you will want to clean up. And in some cases, you will sit down with them. And in a lot of cases, you will make a living amends. But I want you to make note for yourself that it references during step nine, that each morning in meditation, that means what are you doing already, boys and girls? You're doing step 11. Yes, the steps are in order, but we work them together. So they wouldn't have referenced it if they didn't know that you should already be doing it. Now we're going to come to the point of the book where we're ending with step nine and we're going to get into the promises. Let's take a look at the next paragraph and let's see what we can glean from it. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Living it 
is the most important thing. It's Saturday. I could sit in that synagogue until it falls down. Then after the synagogue falls down, I could go to a church. Then I could go to a different church, then a mosque, and then a temple, and then oh this and oh that. And I could pray, 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 pray. And that's great. I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with prayer. Prayer is wonderful. But in this program, unlike my synagogue when I was a child, I have to live these steps. I have to live it. This is an action program. And it's an action program that includes action every single day of my life without exception. The spiritual life is not a theory we have to live it. And what else do you notice about the sentence, we have to live it? They spent extra money putting that sentence in italics. Very, very important for us to remember that they spent extra money putting that in italics. Very important. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles. What are spiritual principles? The steps. He didn't want to keep using the same word, you know, you know, you know, you know. He didn't want to keep using the same word again and again. So he went to writing school, the guy behind me, and he learned you have to use different words. We think we ought not to urge them. In other words, be the example. What did St. Francis of Assisi say? Here I am, a, a chubby Jewish boy from Devon Avenue in Chicago. And one of the people I love more than anybody is St. Francis of Assisi, a Jesuit Catholic priest. And what did he say? He said, preach the gospel. And if you must use words, be a demonstration of what this program can do for you. Be a demonstration. Be that example of what it is. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. They will change in time. What's the next sentence? Our behavior will convince them more than our words. When they see that you are not quick to argue, when they see that you are not quick to fight, when they see that you are not fighting anything or anyone, even food, when they see you as a different person, many of them will want what you have. They will want what you have. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone. These are people that you've lied to. These are people that you've hurt. These are people that have hurt you. These are people that have lied to you. These are people that have let you down. And maybe we don't see that we've hurt them too so often because we don't look for that. But indeed we have, and they have their own side of things. You know, they say there's three sides to every story. There's your side, there's my side, and then there's what really happened. And so we get this idea often, Joe and Charlie speak of this, that we are as innocent as the driven snow. Let me assure you in most cases, we are not. We are just as human. 
just as flawed, just as defected as anyone else. We are bozos on the bus and we have hurt them too. We must take a kindly view of them and a loving view of them. We cannot be out here preaching or not preaching. We cannot be out here saying we believe in a power greater than ourselves while we carry rancor in our hearts for God's children. If we are believers in God, then it is inherent on us, maybe not to love all of God's children, but to at least recognize that indeed that is what they are, God's children. We don't have to walk hand in hand with every one of them. It's not appropriate that we do that, but it's very important for us to take a kindly view of each and every one of them as children of a loving God. And I think that helps me and hopefully it will help you. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. I want to talk to you for just a minute about my mother and my father. My mother died in 1976 when I was 22 years old, but she was effectively lost to me when I was four or five years old. My mother had, my mother, excuse me, my mother had a lot of physical illness, but my mother also had a lot of mental illness. My mother was afflicted with mental illness in that she had three distinct personalities. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic. You never knew how long that was going to last. You never knew what you were walking into. She could be a three-year-old, two-year-old. She could be like a little kid, a little toddler, talking baby talk and, and, and doing silly little things that kids do. And she could be that little kid. And she could be a pretty normal together human being. And I wanted her to stay in that personality that was the normal human being. And I was as abusive and mean to her as I could be because I blamed her and her mental illness for much of what happened in my life. I had a father who was much older than I. He was 54 years old on the day that I was born. He wasn't one generation in front of me. He was two. He was older than many of the grandparents of my friends, and he didn't have any money. My dad was an immigrant. Now, there's a lot of immigrants that do very well in business. My dad was not one of those people. My dad struggled his whole life. He didn't know the language. He didn't know anything about business. He was scared to death of the world. He had seen the most evil, the most horrible, the most nightmarish cruelty that human beings could inflict on another human being. And he didn't know, he didn't understand why he alone lived. My father was part of a family of 40 people who in 1914 were obliterated off the face of the earth for no more reason than they celebrated Sabbath on Friday night and Saturday rather than on Sunday. And they were murdered and they went from six weeks old to about 76, 78 years old. And they were murdered in their homes and one person escaped and it was him. He seldom asked why they were killed. 
he asked God why he alone was allowed to live in this horrible, cruel, mean world. Thank God he lived or I wouldn't be here today. You guys would all have to find something else to do, something else to listen to, because I wouldn't be here had he not survived. And he often said to me, through tears in his eyes, he would say to me, the only reason that I lived is so you could be born in America. And he believed that being born in America was the greatest thing a human being could be. There was no greater honor. There was no greater joy. There was no greater solicit, there was no nothing greater than to be born in the United States of America. And that's what he believed throughout his life, but he was scared. So I resented them. I wanted, I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents and I got Max and Virginia Grabowski, very, very different. I wanted young, thin parents. My mom was close to 300 pounds. My dad was close to 250, 275. They were both compulsive overeaters. My dad was a nonstop smoker. Chesterfield Kings, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And lo and behold, he died at 78 years old in 1978 of lung cancer. And they were the parents that I got. They loved me. I never doubted that. I never doubted that they loved me. Never had a question that they loved me. They didn't love each other. That I can promise you. They hated each other and they showed each other love with pots and pans flying through the air and they would say things to each other that you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. And I'm growing up in this. And what I saw on TV sure didn't match what I was what I was seeing at home and it disturbed me. And I came into program in February, February 2nd, 1979. They were both dead by that time. So I never got a chance to make amends to them. They were gone. Also, there was a young man who lived in my building. He was a cute little boy. He was years younger than us. And in those days when you're 10 and there's a kid that was four years old, that's quite a difference quite a difference six years at that time. And I was uh, uh, pitching and we were playing baseball. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if instead of throwing the ball to the batter, I threw the ball and hit someone in the crowd. I thought it would be funny. And boy, it was, everybody laughed except little Wendell. I hit him with the ball and he was four years old and he could barely breathe. He was crying so hard. Because I hit, it was a softball, it wasn't a league, but still, he was humiliated and he was physically hurt. Seldom have I felt worse about anything than I felt about what I did that day. I have stolen, I have lied. Some of the people that I stole from and some of the people that I lied to were dead before I could make amends to them. And some of the people that I hurt, even though I made an amends for it, they were still hurt. I've said cruel things to people. Hurt people hurt people. And I was hurting. I was fat. I didn't look like the other kids. And I was angry. And I was scared. And I had my dreams shattered by this disease. My stomach was hanging over my belt by the time I was 12 years old. By the time I was 12, 
I was physically and emotionally emasculated by this disease. In every way, physically and emotionally, that you can beat a person down, I have been beat down. I've never had a crush on a girl in my entire life and ever got her to go out with me, even one time. Never have I had a dream that I could actually go out and achieve because of this disease and what it did to beat me down. Never, never, never. So I have had a lot of deprivation and you have too. You have had that too. Maybe your dreams in certain areas were fulfilled, but in others not. How do you go back and make amends to someone that you can't find? How do you go back and make amends to parents who loved you but are dead? I make amends by not doing cruel things as best I can. Maybe sometimes I'm not as nice as I think I am. But I make amends to my mother and I make amends to my father by standing up. Standing up for what I know is right. And that when people are being oppressed, not to turn my back. I can't carry the weight of the world on my shoulder, but I can vote and I can care and I can be a human being that cares. What else do I do? I conduct myself to the best of my ability I didn't used to drool. I think I've had too many birthdays. I don't know. Now I drool, I guess. I guess that's part of the story now. But anyway, that's another thing I'm not happy about, but that's okay. I try to live my life as I know my mother and father would want me to live my life. And I try to do the right thing in all things. I do the best I can. I'm human but I try to, ca to capture them in a good light when people say to me, you've helped me, you've helped me. I give the credit to God and I give the credit to them. And I know that when I go to a retreat or I go to a convention and sometimes the travel beats me down, I hate the connecting flights. You know, one of the things I liked about living in Chicago when you live in Chicago, you don't know what a connecting flight is. I never knew what a connecting flight was that until I moved to, I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. Boy, unless you're going to Denver, Salt Lake City, Portland, or San Francisco, unless the, or Seattle, unless those are your final destinations, you're going to know what connecting flights are. And here in Phoenix, you also have a lot of connecting flights. You live in a city like Chicago, you don't know what a connecting flight is. So sometimes when I go and I have to make these connections, I really don't even want to do that. Honestly, I don't. I hate it. I hate sitting in airports and all this. I mean, this is before, way before COVID, Corona, whatever. But I hate it. But I, when I can, I go. I do what I can do. I do what I can do. And when I do it, I feel like I've given them an honor. And every day of my life, I try to conduct myself in a way that they would be proud of. 
My mother and father were very different people. My father, if you weren't Jewish, he wanted nothing to do with you. Leave me alone. You stay out of my house. I will stay out away from you. You leave me alone. I want nothing to do with you. He was scared. But once he got to know you, then he would soften up and you'd be okay. My mother taught me exactly the opposite. She would say to me, if you live like him and you think like him, you will suffer like him. She'd say to me, listen to me. She'd say, you take a black person, you take a white person, you take a Jew, you take a Catholic, you take a Protestant, you take a Native American, and you dip them in Lake Michigan, and they'll be equally wet. That's what she taught me. My mother marched in the streets with Mahalia Jackson, who you don't even know who that is. Why am I mentioning it? But okay, my mother marched in the streets to bust the redlining that was going on in Chicago. What's redlining? Redlining meant that the lenders of mortgages and the insurance people would not give a person of color a mortgage or insurance to buy a home in certain areas that they wanted to keep restricted. And my mother marched in the street against this. And somebody threw piss on my mother. <clears throat> okay, I'm, I'm not one to march in the streets. I never, that's not who I am and whatever. Okay, that's fine. But the bottom line is, is that it had an impact on me. And when I conduct my, I don't have to necessarily march in the street, but when I conduct myself in a way that says I'm standing up for the principles that you believed were so important, it gives her great pleasure. Maybe politically you're very different than my mom or my dad. I have no idea. I'm just telling you my story. I'm just telling you what I've experienced in my life that somehow someday, not every, I'm not conscious of it every day. They've been gone a long time. 1976 and 1978 is a long time ago, but I have a picture of the two of them that I see every morning that I get up. And when I get up, it's in my, it's in my upstairs. I sleep upstairs. I do everything else down here. I have a two-story house, which I needed like a Lochen cup, which is a hole in your head. I bought it for the location, but I, I shouldn't have a house that's upstairs and downstairs. It's too taxing on me, but okay, for today I can handle it. But when I get up in the morning and I start my day, there they are looking at me. And I take a second and I say, hi guys, don't fight today. I'm going to do the best I can to make you proud. And if you've got any pull with the big guy up there, put the good word in for me, will you? And I go on about my day. I go down the stairs and I do my step 11 every day. But I try to make amends to my mother and father and little Wendell. And I try to make amends to the people that I've hurt by not doing it again. I can't make much of an amends to them. They're gone. They're gone but I can live my life in the direction that I know would make them happy. And so can you. Let's go back to page 83. I got a real sidetrack today. Sorry about all the chatter. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. If you cannot see the person, you send them a letter and you put in there your contrition. Have a sponsor go over the letter with you. I write my mother letters on my birthday and her birthday. 
I write my father letters on my birthday and his birthday, and I pray for them, and I often write them letters on the date that they passed. And I let them know what's going on. And there may be valid reasons for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. We don't delay if it can be avoided. Not the amends being avoided, the delay. We want to get on this. Don't drag your feet. You need a sponsor to keep you moving. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. What does servile and scraping mean? That means you don't go to somebody and say, please be my friend, please forgive me, please understand, I'm doing the best. We don't do that. We are confident people. We are God's people. We are not going to be servile or scraping. They will either forgive you or they will not. They will either react favorably or they will not. It's okay. We're not in the results business. We are not in the business of eliciting a result from these amends. One of the most commonly asked questions that I get almost every week is, can I make an amends to somebody that I'm no longer friends with if I really don't want to be friends with them anymore? And the answer is yes. There's nothing in this book that says you have to be bosom buddies moving forward. You have to make your amends. You don't have to remarry them. You don't have to be bosom buddies with them anymore. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Life has moved on, but we need to make these amends. And we are not servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. Now, I don't want to start the, I don't want to start the um, promises today. I'd rather, because there's only six minutes, seven minutes left. I would rather start, I'd rather lead off with the promises next week and we'll probably take the full hour just on the promises. But what I want to remember, if there's anything to take away from today, it's this. We do the best we can. We move forward in these amends. We need a sponsor. There are amends that we owe to people that are passed away. There are people that we owe amends to that we cannot reach. What do we do about some of these things? We write them a letter. What else do we do? Let's say the person, like in the case of my mom and my dad, what do we do in a situation like that? We do the best we can after writing them a letter and let your sponsor see the letter because the first couple of letters that I wrote to my mother, he tore up in front of me. And the reason he tore up the letters, he says, this is not a letter of amends. This is an indictment. This is you telling your mother how her mental illness affected you. This is you telling your mother that if she wasn't crazy, you'd have had a better life. He says, I'm ripping this up. This is an unacceptable amends letter. And I had to go back and do it again. I had to do it three, four times. And then on the fourth try, I believe, or the fifth try, I wrote the letter. I showed him the letter. And he said, this is exactly what it is 
that you need to do. And before I go, I'd like to tell you the story of a very, very special amends that I had to make in my life. A good number of years ago, I had to go to an endodontist. Now an endodontist is a, is a dentist that specializes in root canal. You don't see too many endodontists today because most dentists today do their own root canal. So the whole science of endodontistry uh, is really gone by the wayside. It's not really something that's viable anymore, but that's neither here nor there. I had to go to this endodontist. I had a root canal that needed to be done and I walked in there and his daughter was the nurse and she ran the office and she made the appointments. It was him and his daughter. And she came in and she numbed me up. She gave me a, a, a shot in my, you know, in your jaw, in your gum, not your jaw, in your gum. And she, she gave me the other couple, I think it was two or three shots that she gave me to numb me up so that by the time he came in, I was already numb and he could just get to work. He walked in and he's looking at my file. And the first thing he says to me is, you have to be the fattest man I've ever seen in my entire life. He says, how much do you weigh? He says, I'm afraid you're gonna break my chair. He says, this chair is only calibrated to 300 pounds. He says, you're, you, you're about double that or, or more. He says, you're gonna break my chair. He says, my God, what do you eat for breakfast? No, hello, no, how you do? No, it's nice to meet you, nothing. This is how he greeted me. So he's fixing my tooth and his face is right, right at my face. You know how close they have to get to do what they need to do, right? He's right here. Now I'm very practiced at emotionally and physically shutting down because I'm used to this from a lifetime of, of serious abuse. And I'm shutting down emotionally and I'm just hoping that he fixes my tooth and let me get the hell out of here and that'll be the end of him. I don't want anything to do with this guy. I just wanna get the hell out of there. Sure enough, he twists me around and the chair breaks. Now he's screaming at his daughter at the top of his lungs. Don't you ever take an appointment from this guy again? This is the fattest man. How dare Dr. Pollock send this guy over here? This guy's like doing root canal on a calf. He's as big as a cow. What the hell? What is he sending me here? What kind of person sends a person to, to break their furniture? And he's yelling about my dentist and he's yelling at me. Don't you ever come back here again? I don't ever want to see you again. Well, one thing leads to another and he gives me the temporary filling and he finishes what he starts. And now I've got a bill for $62. That same bill today would be three, $400. But anyway, I had a bill of $62. Now I had screwed better people than him. You know, when this guy's getting his $62, when the cow jumps over the moon, that's, that's when he's getting his $62, right? I ain't paying this guy. 
Years go by, three, four years go by. I ain't paying them. I'm getting notices and it's going to collections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I need any toilet paper, send me some more letters. So finally, I'm now back in recovery because I had taken a, a couple of years off of my recovery. Now I'm back in recovery and I've got a very tough, very gruff, very direct sponsor. And he says to me, what about the doctor? And I said, it's, it's, a, it's a dentist. He goes, shut up. That's how rough he was with me. And I, I kept making other amends, but I wasn't going to do this guy. I wasn't going to do it. F him. I'm not doing this. So finally, I couldn't, I could, there was nothing else to do. It was a Thursday. I went to the bank right near his office. I still had my account there because this guy's office was two blocks from where I went to high school. I went to Mather High School in Chicago, Mather High, north side of Chicago. I should have a Mather shirt. I have a stepping stone shirt. I should have worn a Mather shirt today. But anyway, I didn't. That's okay. And I go in there with a 50, a 10, and two ones, $62. 50, 10, and two ones. I can see the teller of the bank putting the money in my hand right now. I can, I can go back to that moment in time, Thursday afternoon. I go across and I see his daughter. And she was a looker. She was not somebody that I would ever have forgotten. But I don't see his name on the door anymore. I go in there, I introduce myself to the daughter and she says, I remember you. She says, wow, you've really lost a lot of weight. She says, oh, you look so good. And I said to her why I was there and I need to make an amends. I don't want to pay you the money, blah, blah, blah. She says, oh Lord, she says, I cannot take your money, Mr. Grabowski. She says, I remember how horrible my father treated you. I just cannot take your money. I said, look, you got to take this money. I says, you have no idea how much I need you to take this money. So she took it. I says, please give it to charity, throw it out the window, do whatever, but please take the money. And she took the money. It was a Thursday. And the Thursday night meeting at Swedish Covenant Hospital was that night, which was five minutes from this guy's office. My tires did not touch the ground. I was meeting an OA person for dinner. I figured why go all the way back to my condo when I could just stick around that neighborhood and go to the meeting, which started at seven. We used to get 150 people, the Thursday night speaker meeting at Swedish. We used to get 150, 200 people for that meeting. Now that meeting is five, six, eight people. But anyway, that's for another time. I have never had a meal where I had to force the food down my, I didn't want the food. I didn't want the food. I shared at the meeting that night after the speaker and the euphoria in that room, the love in that room was palpable. I felt close to God. I felt him right there with me challenge God, make 
your amends. Do what you need to do. Don't hesitate. Get the guidance from a sponsor. Don't rush out there and make amends willy-nilly on your own, by yourself, making judgments. Run it past another person, but do it. Trust God. Trust this process. Remember, you have a guarantee on page 88, one of the most important sentences that the English language has ever produced. It's in the big book of AA, page 88. It works. It really does. Want me to say it again? It works. It really does. And these amends, this process, when done, According to the book, according to the guidance of a sponsor, according to the, what, what you see here, will emancipate you, provided you continue with your spiritual growth. If you don't, and you, you don't do, you know, 10, 10, 11, continue, improve, and practice. If you don't do 10, 11, and 12, you will be tackled from behind by this disease. You won't know what hits you. So let's end today 